Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, Facing the Future is on the road at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, as part of our 30-college campus tour marking the 30th anniversary of the Concord Coalition. The tour includes our Principles and Priorities budget exercise with young people all over the country participating. We have students figure out what steps they might take to put the budget on a responsible, fiscally sustainable course and how these choices might impact their own future. Our field director, Phil Smith, was with the students doing the exercise at Ball State's Bowen Institute, and we'll hear from him during the show fielding questions from the students. Then uh, we were joined by two federal budget experts for a panel discussion regarding some of the budget choices Congress may face grappling with our long-term fiscal challenges. The two budget experts are Josh Gordon, director of the health care policy at uh, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, and by the way, former policy director of the Concord Coalition, and Ben Ritz, or at Budget Ben, as he's known on Twitter, He's the director of the the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future, and in the interest of full disclosure, was once the outreach director for the Concord Coalition. Josh, uh, your specialty is following health care. Generally speaking, um, why is health care so important to the government's fiscal sustainability? Thanks for uh, having me here, Bob. It's a pleasure to be back and a pleasure to be at Ball State. Uh, healthcare is important because uh, the healthcare programs are, when you combine them, uh, the largest chunk of the federal budget, uh, other than, you know, if you look in the future, interest has the potential to get there. Uh, but really, when we talk about the programs that people depend on, uh, the healthcare programs combined are, are very large. And it's not just that they're large, it is that they are projected to grow faster than the economy can keep up with over the long term, with which leads to an unsustainable future that looks very much like the federal budget's unsustainable future, uh, because it is all about this growth that happens faster than the economy can keep up with, which means the more we work, the more we produce as a country, healthcare uh, eats a bigger and bigger chunk of that over the long term. And that is a problem because of one other thing that we know, and that is we are not getting our money's worth for that large amount of healthcare spending. You could envision a world where the more we spent on healthcare, the healthier we all were, which means we could stay in the workforce longer and be more productive and have that be a very efficient choice for us to make. Uh, But unfortunately, that is not the world that we live in. Our healthcare system is um, uniquely inefficient uh, in using all of that money that we put towards it, uh, especially when you compare us to basically every other developed country in the world 
that spends substantially less than we do, both as a share of the economy and per person. Uh, and yet, um, we get uh, outcomes that are the same uh, or worse than those other countries. So that's why I worry about spending so much money on healthcare and having that amount of money grow uh, on an annual basis. Is there some way that we could spend money more efficiently? <laughs> but I, was, I mean, I guess there's nothing we can do really about the demographics. So I guess when we think about reform options, uh, that's really where we should be looking, looking at is trying to get more bang for the buck, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the, the way I look at it is if you're spending a lot of money on healthcare and yet your outcomes are the same as other countries that spend less, you uh, can at you, you can do two things. One, you could reduce that amount of money and try and get more efficient to kind of match the output that these other countries seem to have, which would be very good because that would free up a lot of resources to invest in other areas of the economy that might be more productive. Or you could dump all that extra money into research and development, into providing insurance for everyone, uh, into a lot of things to try and improve our outcomes. Um, and then you would be making a choice as a society whether we're going to put extra economic output into making our lives better by being healthier, living longer, um, et cetera. And that's when you're just looking at the healthcare part of the federal budget. If you look at the overall federal budget, obviously there are larger implications if all of a sudden we all lived healthier lives for a longer period of time. Uh, but those implications would be easier to deal with because we could also stay in the workforce longer, be more productive uh, instead of sort of sapping the economy uh, by taking all of this money out for immediate consumption uh, that goes right into the healthcare system where uh, you know a decent chunk of that is wasted in the sense that we're not getting outcomes that match the amount of money we're putting in. I want to ask one uh, one more question here, and this is about um, you know one of the one of the options that we hear that we hear a lot about, and probably will hear a lot about, is uh, the possibility of Medicare uh, negotiating over drug prices. Is that a, a reform that could save money? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think. Um, you know, there are, there are basically two ways to save money in healthcare. Uh, one is to lower prices and pay hospitals, doctors, drug companies less for uh, the same activities, uh, or you restrict the amount of utilization that patients have of the healthcare system. Uh, and you uh, have to do one or the other or both. And so driving down drug prices by having the government negotiate those prices with drug manufacturers uh, attacks the price piece there and reduces the amount we pay per drug, which would definitely lower drug spending. Um, ben, let me uh, turn to you for some thoughts on Social Security. Uh, this is a, a, maybe seems a little bit counterintuitive. You're the youngest one on the panel. Uh, and yet uh, uh, you spent a lot of time researching and uh, thinking about and writing about Social Security reform. So um, 
let me just ask you this. What uh, You've been very interested in Social Security reform since I first knew you as a 20-year-old intern. <laughs> and I, I'm just, why do you think Social Security is something that younger people need to be thinking about right now rather than just uh, older people like me? Yeah, so I think the main reason why young people need to care about Social Security is, number one, it's it's our future just because we aren't on the program primarily today doesn't mean that we won't need it in the future. And the policies that we are putting in place now or not putting in place now will impact what kind of program we can depend on when we retire. On top of that, we're the ones paying into the system right now. Uh, our payroll taxes are supporting the program. And, right, and the program as it's currently structured is going to uh, become insolvent in 2035, so about 10 years from now. Now, insolvency doesn't mean that the program's just going to go away, but there is a gap between the revenues that we are paying and the benefits that will need to come out or that are being paid to seniors. Uh, that's about 30% of the program. And that, that discrepancy is going to have to be addressed either with um, benefit cuts or tax increases. And the longer we rate, wait to do anything about it, the more likely that burden is to fall on young people instead of being uh, more evenly distributed across generations. So I think both from a making sure the program is there for us in the future and making sure that the, um, the financing burden is shared evenly, I think it's something that really should matter to young people. When you look at the uh, reform options and and I know you've looked at some not just for Social Security, but for retirement policy in general. But should we expect and encourage longer working lives? I think the answer is we have to. Um, the longer that people live, uh, the the harder it is to sustain the current benefit structure. Um, when the program was founded, there were far more uh there are far more taxpayers paying the benefit of each retiree. So I think it, it used to be uh, at the inception closer, closer to 10 to 1. Uh, more recently, it's, it's been 3 to 1. So that's three workers paying the benefit for every retiree. And over the, the next few years, it's, that ratio is going to move to 2 to 1. So the way this was uh, framed to me is that under the current system, every couple will be working to support their own retiree. That's, that's a pretty big uh, substantial uh, financial burden to to put on on working people, and I think that changing our the amount of time we spend working versus in retirement uh, is an important way to to reduce that burden. Now, obviously, some people who work physically demanding jobs or who are who are very low income probably can't work that much longer, and a lot of the gains in longevity have been concentrated at the top. So that has to be taken into account in any policy to raise the, the retirement age. But to just say we're not going to adjust the retirement age and we're going to keep the current system, that's just not going to be financially sustainable. Uh, one more question on the reform front. Um, what about bringing in more revenue? What about raising the cap, which is uh, 147000 I think, this year on taxable wages that, uh, you know, there's a certain cap where you are no longer subject to the uh, Social Security payroll tax. Uh, so do you favor that as a reform option? I do think we have to look at raising the, the payroll tax cap as, as a reform option, but I think we need to 
be very clear eyed about what exactly that means. Cause it, it's one of those things that just sounds like a very intuitive fix. You get rid of the payroll tax cap, make rich people pay the same amount as, as middle income people. And, and that'll solve the, solve the problem. Um, few issues with that are number one, uh, it's, it's a much bigger tax increase than it sounds like. It's effectively a 15% uh, or sorry, um, I think it's a 12% marginal tax rate increase uh, on all income over $147,000 would probably be one of the biggest tax increases um, in, in our history. And I'm, I'm not, as a progressive, not necessarily opposed to that. Uh, but if we put all of that revenue into social security, that's going to, that's a big question as far as then what are we going to do about Medicare and all the other programs in the federal budget? On top of that, even if we were to just completely scrap the payroll tax cap, uh, that only deals with part of the problem that wouldn't solve the entire shortfall. So that's not a panacea in and of itself. And then um, finally, there is a historical linkage between revenue taxes paid and benefits. So uh, the more money you pay into Social Security, the more benefits you get out when you retire. And if we get rid of that cap, we have to decide, are we going to award higher benefits to the people paying higher taxes like we would under the current system, which that reduces some of the benefit that we get from raising the, the cap because we spend that on new benefits for people who don't need them? Or are we going to break that link between revenues and between taxes paid and benefits and that? other questions that we have to think about for the uh, future of the program. So I, I think it's something that has to be considered, but it's, it's not as simple a solution as it sounds sometimes. Nothing is. <laughs> um, so just looking, kind of summing up here on the Social Security and, and Medicare front, you know, we talk about the trust fund running dry and there's actually two trust funds for everybody that wants to be technical. There's a retirement trust fund and a disability trust fund. And then on the Medicare side, there's the, uh, there's the Medicare Part A or hospital insurance uh, trust fund, which is like Social Security funded by the payroll tax. Uh, and when we talk about those, tr those are the trust funds that we talk about in terms of um, how many years of additional solvency do they have. They're both uh, scheduled to run out, as Ben said, you know, within the 10 year, 10 to 15 years. Um, what if we do nothing? I mean, what would actually happen if the Social Security Trust Fund or the um, uh, actually went dry? Well, under current law, if the trust fund runs dry, then the benefits paid out can only be equal to incoming revenue. So, Right now, Social Security is actually already spending more on benefits than it's collecting in revenue, but is allowed to continue making full benefit payments because of the past surpluses that it ran that is stored in the trust fund. Once the trust fund runs out, uh, if revenues are 25 or 30% lower than benefits as they're projected to be by some projections, then that would lead to an, an immediate across the board benefit cut of that amount. So it, we're not looking at the program disappearing, but we are looking at a, a very sizable uh, and, and sudden benefit cut. Yeah, as, as uh, somebody that will be uh, no doubt a beneficiary at that time, um, I'm, I'm 
Got my eye on that one. Um, uh, and Josh, the same thing true with Medicare. I mean, it, I guess it'd be uh, sudden cuts if you actually got to that point. Yeah, uh, we think there would be about 9% uh, of cuts to the program. And uh, that, you know, wouldn't have the same um, sort of dramatic impact on beneficiaries right away because um, it's really money that goes to pay doctors and hospital, or, I'm sorry, doctors at hospitals or hospitals for your care at the hospital. So it's not like you see a benefit cut um, in, a, in, a, in a check, but all of a sudden you're going to go to the hospital and some hospitals won't take Medicare patients anymore because they're going to get paid 9% less for whatever procedures you're going to have at that hospital. And you'll hear doctors and hospitals complain. I will tell you this, Bob, uh, I am not actually concerned that that would be allowed to happen. Right now, there is a huge uproar in Washington on a 1% cut um, that uh, really is just kind of removing some stimulus that was given to uh, hospitals um, heading into COVID. Um, and uh, they're trying to kind of normalize payments coming out of COVID. And just that 1% cut is being met with um, sort of hysterical lobbying. Um, and so... Uh, what would instead happen is uh, everyone's tax rates would go up right away. And um, unlike Social Security, uh, the hospital insurance tax is not capped uh, on income. So it would be, uh, you know, like a one and a half or 2% increase in marginal tax rates for everyone uh, in the country on a specific date and time uh, just in 2026. So not very far away. Yeah, I think that you've kind of injected the uh, the politics into the situation, which is uh, always relevant because it, you're right that the there probably would not be a sudden uh, draconian cut in these things. But, you know, for programs that are supposed to have uh, the, not that they're entirely self-financing, although Social Security is supposed to be, but um you know, when the uh, the 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 last resort is to just reach for general revenues and uh, and prop up these programs. And that would be the uh, I think that that would be the fix. But that's also a problem because you're running a huge deficits. So if 10 or 20 years from now, you have to uh, just uh, reach for ever, ever more uh, big dollops of um uh, general revenues that constrains what you can do in, in anything else, uh, any other programs that uh, people might want to pay for and invest in at that time. So that's and an let's argument. let's be clear what that means to people at Ball State and college students and people just entering the workforce is that they are going to be hit, be hit by very large tax increases to pay for benefits for people no longer in the workforce, people that are retired. Uh, in, in order to support those benefits. And for something like healthcare, I think what um, really kind of gets me upset is that we know that that's going to a very inefficient healthcare system. Um, so uh, the people that are in the workforce working hard are going to pay higher taxes to support retirees no longer working and getting very expensive and inefficient healthcare. And that, that does not seem like uh, the right trade-off for us to make as a country. Um, we've talked a lot. Mostly now we've talked exclusively about the uh, the major um, spending programs. Uh, we talked a little bit about the payroll tax, but I think if we're talking about a fiscally responsible growth agenda, 
uh, for both of you, let me begin with Ben. Is there is there a um, a role for higher revenues, not just for Social Security, but I mean just generally for the budget? Yeah, I don't think there's any way you can deal with the problem without higher revenues. I mean, as as we've said, the the biggest spending programs are healthcare and Social Security. People have uh, plan their retirements around them, and you know either we would have to get rid of every other spending program besides those, which is is completely not feasible, or we'd have to do very deep cuts in those programs uh, that that are both not politically feasible and and would not um, be play uh, morally desirable either. So I think higher revenues have to be part of the equation. The question is. Number one, what's the what's the fair mix between revenue and spending? And number two, how are we going to design those revenue increases so that they're both uh, fair and economically efficient? We probably have to look at higher income or payroll taxes, but also think about new revenue sources, whether that's a carbon tax, uh, which seems increasingly unlikely as if it, it was likely before the, the gas price surge or probably even less likely now. Um, or something like a consumption tax. None of the uh, other developed countries in Europe that have social safety nets as generous as ours fund them solely through an income tax. Uh, I think we have to look at those additional revenue sources to make them sustainable. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll have more from our panelists, Josh Gordon and Ben Ritz, and our discussion on federal budget priorities from Ball State University in Indiana, coming up after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Let's get back to our panel discussion with students and community members at Ball State University focusing on our long-term fiscal challenges. Our two panelists are Josh Gordon of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget and Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute. Concord Coalition Field Director Phil Smith was with the students in Indiana and helped field questions. To continue our discussion on how to generate more federal revenue, panelist Josh Gordon says tax reform is clearly needed. Even our, our income tax that we deal with right now uh, could use a lot of work. Uh, and we have talked for many years about how you can broaden the base of taxation by eliminating all the loopholes and deductions and rate preferences we have in our tax code and get more revenue that way. And that is a way to raise revenue that also would help um, increase economic growth because it increases the efficiency of the tax code. And, you know, I, we, we tend to get kind of pessimistic and, and sound really doom and gloom when we talk about this stuff. But, uh, you know, I like to think of tax reform as one of those kind of things that makes me optimistic because there is a way to uh, get more revenue to help address this budget problem that won't harm economic growth. And normally that's why we're afraid to raise taxes. We're afraid to um, hold down economic growth by needing to raise these revenues. But I don't think those two things have to be in opposition. And so this is one of those kind of federal budget opportunities that is more of a sort of political will question. Do we have the political will to just straighten out the tax code and get rid of all these things that are there uh, because um, very uh, targeted people with a lot of money and fought for them over lots of years. Uh, but we would all be better off if we got rid of those, uh, which would enable us to bring in more revenue, even maybe lower tax rates uh, and, and help 
spur some economic activity. Well, and some of those breaks are uh, felt by the general public and the middle class. Uh, I mean, some of the biggest ones are things like uh, employer-provided health care insurance and the mortgage interest deduction, the so-called, you know, uh, tax expenditures. And uh, so getting rid of those, it's I, I sometimes worry that, uh, you know, talking about tax breaks, people think of, you know, their our equivalent of the Russian oligarchs or something. And if we just, uh, you know, went after them, we get it. But I mean, the really big money in the tax expenditures does come from I mean, there are some pretty egregious ones that are uh, targeted for individual uh, businesses and not individual businesses per se, but I mean, in industries. Uh, but but the big ones uh, really uh, do affect a lot of people. And they're almost like reforming entitlement programs. Right? I mean, they are entitlement programs. It just runs through the tax code. But there's a lot of money yeah. there. I want to I, I think it's a good time to bring the audience in here if we have any uh, questions on any part of the budget, not just that we've talked about, but anything that uh, that you want to discuss or the economy. Uh, now's your chance. If not, I'll just ramble on. Yeah. Hi, Josh. Uh, my, my name's Mitch Upchurch. I've been in the healthcare industry for a long time deal with Medicare people. Um, what do you think the biggest expenditure on Medicare? I, the business that I'm in, I see a lot of Medicare fraud. Um, and, you know, we always talk about cutting taxes. Is there a more efficient way how we could monitor how we pay providers? Uh, because a lot of the information that I get is one of the biggest expenditures on Medicare is we're, we're, we're spending a lot of money to doctors and services that aren't performed. What are, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? So, I, I mean, there, there are two things. One, I think, obviously, we need to be concerned about Medicare fraud and um, do as much as we can to, um, to make sure that it happens as little as possible. I think, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, when you have a program as large as Medicare, uh, there are always going to be sort of bad apples uh, sure. acting in the system to get to get extra money out of it. And, you know, we, th there's a fine line between having uh, a larger bureaucracy in order to prevent that fraud versus um, then setting up a bunch of roadblocks in the doctor patient relationship and taking mm -hmm. more of doctors times on each patient and that kind of thing. I, I would say the thing that kind of scares me the most uh, is um, that we have things that aren't fraud, but are clearly um, disturbing because of some of the incentives that are built in to Medicare. And, and there's right. something that I was dealing with uh, today uh, in Medicare Advantage, which is a program I don't know if you all know. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with Medicare Advantage. Yeah. Well, all, almost half of all Medicare beneficiaries are uh, currently enrolled in Medicare Advantage. And yeah. one of the problems is that we spend more per person in Medicare Advantage than we would if we treated those people in traditional fee-for-service, uh, which is the kind of Medicare most people think about. Medicare Advantage has private insurance companies getting money from the government to treat, um, to, to ensure Medicare beneficiaries and negotiate their relationships with doctors. And right. one of the things that happens is you get paid more as a insurance plan in Medicare Advantage, uh, the more doctors 
uh, write down on a piece of paper what mm-hmm. your illnesses are, your sort of diagnoses. Right. And there's a lot of incentives for doctors and insurance plans to code down as many diagnoses as, as, as possible. And this is really a fine line between um, fraud, which the Department of Justice has started looking into a lot, and just a very poor incentive that leads to higher taxpayer costs. No, you're right. I, I have firsthand knowledge of everything that you're talking about. Um, but from the information that I get uh, from a lot of the insurance companies, so to speak, I've always heard that Medicare Advantage is more efficient than traditional Medicare Uh, on a per Medicare beneficiary basis, like, you know, so to speak. So um, in the trend, what I see is more and more Medicare beneficiaries like the Medicare Advantage more so than traditional Medicare. So I was always under the impression that Medicare Advantage is more efficient than traditional Medicare. So I'll leave you with this, and then we can get to someone yeah, else's question. Sure, sure, absolutely. I, th- I think the research shows that Medicare Advantage is more efficient than traditional Medicare, mm-hmm. and yet we are still paying more for it. Uh, and that, that difference is very high insurance profits that yep. we're kind of injecting into yeah. the Medicare system, just adding to the amount of money we spend on Medicare when we already know that Medicare is on an unsustainable path. I understand. Okay. Well, Josh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Phil, do we have another question from the audience? We sure do, Bob. This question sort of reflects something that we hear from a lot of young people oftentimes uh, that they don't believe that Social Security will be there in its full form. But Troy, a student uh, from Ball State, he's from Connecticut. He's majoring in political science. Ask if we do take out Social Security in 10 to 15 years, and I'm quoting him, and just cut it. Should the federal or state governments encourage employers to match 401k contributions or should the federal government just stay out of it? Uh, Troy says that he works in a fuel filter factory uh, in Indiana and that his employer matches his own 401k plan contributions, 50 cents to the dollar. So basically, Troy's asking if Social Security will really run out, as he thinks, in the next 10 to 15 years, people in his generation need to have plan a plan of some sort for retirement savings. So he asked, should the federal government get involved in asking companies to contribute more to 401k plans? And would it save us in the long run if we were to lose Social Security benefits, but if the federal government could get more involved in 401k contributions? Dan, you want to handle that? Sure. So I think two two things to, to be clear about. Number one, um, just to reiterate, Social Security is not going to go away entirely. Um, you can still count on, depending on where you are in the income distribution, someone who is uh, at the middle or lower end is extremely unlikely to face a benefit cut of more of more than's under current law. So you're still going to get three quarters of your, your benefit, at least probably much more than that. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that even if Social Security weren't going to get cut, it would still be important for people to be saving for retirement because Social Security was always meant to be uh, you know, a foundation of retirement security, but not the entirety of uh, your retirement plan. So people still need personal savings, 401k plans, pensions if they're available. Um, that's something that everybody should still be trying to do is make those, those contributions. As far as employer matches, uh, there are already some, some incentives for companies to do the, the employer match. 
we could do we could do more of them, but again, that also carries with it costs. I think the most important thing that we should be encouraging businesses to do is automatically enroll their employees in 401k plans. So right now, uh, a lot of businesses you have to most businesses you have to opt in to the savings plan, and a lot of people when they start their jobs, they unlike you, they don't think about that. They 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 might be willing to save, but they just don't take the affirmative step, and so. If we automatically enroll people in plans and have employer matches, that's going to make it easier to uh, help people build personal savings. And that will help both under the current system and would help uh, you know, buttress the effects of any benefit cuts that come down the line. And I will, I'll just add that uh, when you said, should the federal government get involved, the federal government is already heavily involved because one of those large tax breaks I was talking about uh, goes to uh, 401k plans. That's a way to save money uh, that is tax-free. So, um, and it, it's one of the four, you know, largest um, kind of tax expenditures we have uh, in the tax code already. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Stay tuned for more of our panel discussion with students and community members at Ball State University in Indiana, looking at how we address our nation's long-term fiscal sustainability. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. This week, we're hearing from a panel discussion we recently conducted at Ball State University in Indiana with students and community members looking at how Congress might go about addressing fiscal sustainability and our long-term debt. Our two panelists were Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute and Josh Gordon of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Our national field director, Phil Smith, was with the students and community members at Ball State. Phil, do we have another question from the audience? Yes, we do, Bob. Uh, Ball State student Christian Garrett from Southern Indiana has a question about health care spending and Social Security, Medicare, and, and the Medicaid deficit. He asks, uh, shouldn't we be talking more about the health of our population and that if we address the health of the population first, could we really cut down on Medicare and Medicaid spending in total and also deal with the issue of increasing the retirement age for a healthier, more productive society uh, in general? And uh, would it also help with the deficit in Social Security spending? Uh, and, and he would like that question to go to our expert, Josh Gordon. So it is true that uh, through certain measures, the United States is more unhealthy than other countries. Uh, but if you kind of look at what that really means, um, even though we're more unhealthy, we actually see doctors less than they do in other countries. Uh, we don't take prescription drugs any more frequently than they do in other countries. And the real difference is that every time we go to a doctor or take a prescription drug, it just costs much more. The price is much higher. So uh, I certainly believe that uh, we should be finding ways to have the government um, incentivize healthier living. Uh, we, we can have different sort of um, knowledge about nutrition and anti-smoking campaigns and, and all of these things. But ultimately, what makes the big difference between what we spend inefficiently versus other countries is not that we um, see doctors more often. It's that we just spend so much more per service every time we see a doctor. And I think that is something that um, 
the government actually has more power to influence uh, than they do whether people are living healthy or, or unhealthy lives. And all of the money that we could save by becoming more inefficient, you could use some of that to put back into social supports or um, anti-poverty programs that can help with kind of the general health of the population. Because we do know that a lot of our um, unhealthiness comes from um, excessive poverty and that um, health inequities uh, that that we see around the country. Yeah, let me uh, add on that, that it's a, you know, no, one of the things is we, we really should invest in um, in wellness, but that too is a cost. So you don't necessarily save money, even though it's something that uh, that we ought to do. At some point, it, people will will if you cure diseases at an earlier life, people will die of something at a later point. And I I, I mean I don't mean to be you know sound harsh about it, but we're all going to die of something. And so uh, spending on wellness is is obviously a good thing that we should do for public health. Um, but it, it 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 shouldn't be looked at as something, you know, that would really necessarily save money over over the long term. I remember when I looked at this a while ago, I don't know if this was this is still the case. But when I first started getting into this stuff, uh, I think the stat was something like every the more money you put into prevention, the more you end up also spending on the back end for, you know, social security for longer life expectancy. Uh, you provide more Medicare benefits the longer people are in retirement. So it does end up basically being a wash. Now, if you're able to extend lifespans for for free, that's that's fantastic. Obviously, as Bob said, we should do it, um, but it doesn't end up having much net savings, if if any. Thank you, Ben. Uh, we have a question uh, from Seth. Seth, if you'd step up and tell us your whole name and where you're from. Um, I'm Seth Rawlings. I am from Muncie, Indiana, and I senior graduate in econ degree in politics. Uh, my question is kind of, um, it's a little bit different when we talk about social security, but I, I kind of have like a pet project where I think social security, I think we give out benefits at a weird time. Um, I know when the program was created, like the, we had a big retirement crisis out of the Great Depression made of a big thing, I think we could have a new program for like a sort of venture capital for young adults where you kind of give so, a social security type program, people age like 18 to 25, and, you're, and you invest money into them at a younger age uh, that is kind of taxed with a different tax structure. I just didn't know if you guys are open to any of that at all or if anybody would have an opinion on that. You know, Social Security is a social insurance program and should be evaluated that way. It's not a, an investment program, per se. I think that, um, you know, one element that could be added to the Social Security system is, uh, you know, the idea of uh, an investment element to it, but it would have to be funded with new money. In other words, if you took money out of the current system, to put into, say, retirement uh, savings plans that people might invest on their own, uh, it would create a bigger hole that would have to be uh, uh, filled by general revenue and it would expand the deficit. So you wouldn't uh, come out ahead that way. I think w one way to do that would be with a new dedicated source of revenue to a um, private account component of Social Security, which I would 
rush to say is not, quote unquote, privatizing Social Security, but adding a new fully funded element to it, which would look at long-term savings, and I think would have some very positive elements to it. The key is, though, uh, funding it, making sure that it was a fully funded uh, element to the new system, rather than just uh, creating a new unfunded benefit. I really enjoyed uh, being here, and I hope that everybody enjoyed going through some of the tough choices uh, that I mean, that sounds a little silly. I hope you really enjoy going through some of the tough choices and the, the, the things that face your generation. But really, it's, it's uh, y- you know, we need to face up to these choices. We need to do it in a, in a you know, bipartisan way. There are going to have to be compromises, I think, from the answers you heard from both Josh and Ben. It's going to need things that are on the spending side and things that are on the revenue side. And those are politically difficult. And the only the only way you can get there is for both sides to agree uh, that they're going to put everything on the table. Uh, And, uh, you know, there are no magic bullet solutions. There's no you know, you can't cut waste, fraud and abuse and hope to close the kind of gaps that we're looking at. And the gaps are so big that we can't even with strong economic growth, you can't just magically grow your way out of it. So they're going to have to be some policy compromises. And the other thing I would say just in closing is uh, we got to get to that sooner rather than later, because the longer these problems are out there, the more they fester, the worse they get. You don't solve these problems by ignoring them. And I want to just you know think about President Biden's State of the Union address. What did he talk about? He talked about a war in Europe. He talked about a, a pandemic. Uh, And he talked about spiraling inflation. Those are good things to talk about because they're on everybody's mind. I can assure you that those things were not on anybody's mind a couple of years ago. If you had said that the president was going to give a State of the Union address talking about a ground war in Europe, which hadn't happened in 80 years, a global pandemic, which hadn't happened in 100 years, and spiraling inflation, which hadn't happened in 40 years, they said, that's crazy. That's, you know, these are issues that we just don't talk about anymore. My point is this, stuff happens. And if you don't deal with the long-term structural problems that you know you have, they're only gonna get worse as the short-term crises and the ups and downs of the business cycle uh, come, come back to get you and all of these problems just compound. So we need to get to these long-term problems because we're gonna always have to deal with the emergencies. We're always gonna have to deal with the emergencies and it's right to do so. But if you know you got a long-term structural problem, you better darn well deal with it because it's just gonna get worse. I don't know when it all gets, You know, when's the tipping point on too much debt? Nobody can answer that question. Nobody really knows. But at some point, you know that it just becomes a problem. And the younger you are, the more you have at stake. So thank you for participating in tonight's event. Phil, uh, you know, this is really fascinating to listen to the questions that the students pose, and they're, they're really good ones. Uh, you've done a lot of these things. Do you, do you think that the students really um, get into this idea of looking long-term with uh, these budget choices? They do. I think that the students of today uh, know some things that students have yesteryear may not have realized quite as much at an early age. They've had to contend with debt at a different level, right? They have personal debt, they have student level debt. So they know about debt. Now they're still susceptible to some of the myths of the federal budget. You know, I still hear a little bit from them about, 
you know, oh, do we spend too much on foreign aid and that kind of stuff, you know, when foreign aid is only 1% of the budget or, or approximately. Uh, but the other thing that I think that today's young people have seen is they, they, they're they living through a pandemic, a once in a century pandemic. And the pandemic has sort of pulled the veil back on health care for all generations, but especially for young people, because they've seen what their grandparents have gone through. They've seen, uh, you know, this pandemic has had huge repercussions, uh, particularly, um, you know, life and death repercussions that they've seen, but they've also seen the cost associated with it. Right. And so I, I think today's young people are, have lived through so much at such an early age that they are fortunately or unfortunately experts uh, on some of these federal budget issues. Well, they may be known in the future as the pandemic generation. We'll see. That's all the time we have this week on Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another episode of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.